Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Want to have more focus in your day? Be better at mental tasks. Reduce stress, keep your weight in check, look younger, boost your energy, your immune system, and your mood. What if I told you there is just one thing that can help you achieve all this? Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Today, it's all about sleep. Something many of us constantly undervalue, but we really shouldn't. Sleep is an absolutely fundamental biological process. It is as important to us as eating and drinking, and it's as important to our survival and well-being and functioning as all those other basic human processes that we do. Lee Signal is a professor of fatigue management and sleep health at Massey University based in Wellington. And she would like to see a mindset shift when it comes to sleep. I think our society has created this environment where sleep is devalued and we're trying to fit more into our waking days and we're seen as productive and effective and um, strong and powerful when we talk about not getting very much sleep. Um, You know, when we get up early and we work long hours and we stay awake late. But I think we need to change the story and we need to change the way we talk about sleep. Would you like to see a society where we catch up in the morning and you're like, I got eight solid hours and people high-five you? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about talking to you right now is that I think we need to talk about sleep more. So let's do that. But the thing is, when I ask Lee the basic question, what's the purpose of sleep? Beyond entertaining dreams of flying, what does sleep do? Oh, I wish I could tell you the answer to that question because we really don't know. But the current theory is that it has many really important purposes. There's this lovely quote by one of the key people in the area of sleep science, and it is, if sleep does not serve some absolutely vital function, then it is the greatest mistake the evolutionary process has ever made. Evolution has had millions of years to sort this out. Because sleep isn't clever, right? We're basically on standby for a third of the day, easy prey for whatever might be about. So we obviously need it. And from both real-life examples and experiments in the lab, when we don't get enough sleep, there are a variety of things that are impacted. Our emotional regulation is not as good. We can all experience this. We know what we feel like the next day when we haven't had a great night's sleep. Um, We're moodier, we're, we're grumpier, we're more irritable. It is fundamental in helping us regulate our emotions. Oh, I know that one. If I lack sleep, my emotions are all over the place. A telltale sign for me of sleep deprivation is becoming a watery mess at any kind of emotional TV programme or even ad. That's an effect we've probably all experienced. But there are others. 
in experimental studies where people have deprived people of sleep and then given them a flu vaccine, we can see that the people who were deprived of sleep created less antibodies post-vaccine than those who were provided with a sufficient amount of sleep. Um, so the way our immune system functioning is changed. It's really important in the control of our metabolism. Um, when we look at large populations of people, we can see that people who get insufficient sleep are more likely to be overweight or obese. Um, so there's a link between, and we're starting to understand the processes that might link short sleep to weight gain. Maybe we don't value sleep because we can't relate to it. It feels kind of like a switched off or turned down version of being awake. But Lee says this isn't the case. What's really clear is that there are processes and things that happen during sleep that just cannot happen when we are awake. Another example is that we know during sleep, now recently um, science has shown us, that only during sleep can our brain remove certain toxins and chemicals that have built up during wakefulness. And so it's like it's like the vacuum cleaning occurring, um, and it can only occur when we are asleep. Plus, it impacts important aspects of how our brains work. Your ability to remember what we're talking about here today is going to be determined by how much and how well you slept last night, as well as um, how much and how well you sleep tonight. And then it's really important in our everyday functioning and well-being, you know, our ability to respond quickly, make decisions, be situationally aware. All those aspects of our functioning are intricately linked with, with sleep. Basically, cut off the supply of sleep and our brains and bodies are all the worse for it. Now, we didn't know all of this in the 50s, 60s and 70s, which seems to have been this weird heyday for sleep deprivation stunts. In 1959, two DJs in America, Dave Hunter and Peter Tripp, almost simultaneously started a publicity stunt to stay awake and on the radio. Though Hunter outlasted him, Tripp is the more famous. The Fabulous 40 of 1959. Your hits of the year, I'm Peter Tripp. He did his 201 hours, or just over eight days of sleeplessness, in a glass booth in Times Square. He became upset, confused, moody, paranoid, and started hallucinating. He began seeing spiders in his shoes. He actually could see these spiders in his shoes. He'd take off his shoes and look inside them and say, the, 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 those are spiders. See those spiders in there? This is an excerpt from The Secrets of Sleep, a video documentary about Tripp's experience. The voice you hear is one of the scientists who monitored him. They also give him stimulants to keep him awake, and so there are some questions over whether the symptoms he experienced were due to the drug or to the sleep deprivation. But some people close to Tripp reported that there were long-lasting effects on his personality after this. Probably the most famous day awaker is Randy Gardner, who did it in 1964 to win a high school science fair. Randy was 17 at the time, and two buddies did shifts with him to keep him awake using Coca-Cola, cold showers and noise. A few days in, a Stanford sleep researcher called Dr. William DeMent showed up to monitor how Gardner performed on different tests as the time went on. He stayed awake for 264 hours, or 11 days. Physically, I didn't have any problems, but the mental part is what went downhill. 
The longer I stayed awake, the, most, the more irritable I got. I, I had a, a, a very short fuse on day 11. That's Gardner speaking on an episode of the Hidden Brain podcast. Dr. Dement would set him mental tasks to do, but sometimes, partway through, he would forget what he was doing. Decades later, in his 60s, Randy Gardner developed insomnia. I, I know I couldn't do it now, and I wouldn't do it now, <laughs> because I have more sense. But his record actually didn't stand all that long. According to the Guinness Book of Records, within the same year, the time was stretched out to 276 hours, or 11 and a half days. It was broken again in 1967, then 69, then 74, and again in 77, when Maureen Weston of Cambridgeshire in the UK smashed the record with her rocking chair marathon. She stayed awake 449 hours, 18 days and 17 hours. The last record holder for all time of this dubious honour was Robert MacDonald, who went 453 hours and 40 minutes in 1986. The Guinness Book of Records no longer monitors the record because of the inherent dangers associated with sleep deprivation. I mean, it's also used as a form of torture. And actually, there was a second reason that the Guinness people stopped monitoring the record. Sleep researchers discovered the existence of microsleeps, little sleep lapses that last a few seconds that are impossible to pick up without continuous physiological recording equipment. So there's a caveat that people may well have been microsleeping throughout, and we don't really know the true effects of sleeplessness for these lengths of time. Anyway, this kind of extreme acute sleep deprivation is not a common occurrence. But getting too little sleep night after night, that is. And that's what Professor Lee Signal is interested in. It's been these beautiful laboratory studies that have been run where they bring people into a laboratory setting and they look at their functioning and they know everyone's about the same and then they break them into groups um, and one group's given, say, nine hours in bed a night and then they track them over the next week and then they have other groups of people um, that might have three five or seven hours in bed at night and they look at what happens to those people day after day after day and what we have seen is that even in the group that gets seven hours in bed a night there's this slow decline in functioning as you follow them across the seven days so seven hours in bed at night might give you the average person you know about six and a half hours of sleep And we can see that that does not allow you to maintain your functioning over time. So there's a cumulative, a cumulative effect of missing out on a bit of sleep day after day after day. But the seven-hour group does better than the five-hour group whose functioning declines more rapidly. And the three-hour group is worst of all. Their functioning declines very quickly. When you say functioning here, what kind of tests are we talking about? What functions? So in these laboratory studies, they're using quite simple tasks. They're using tasks that require you to respond quickly to a stimulus and to be able to maintain your attention. But they're fundamental things that are often really important most everyday kind of tasks that we do, driving, um, operating machinery, those sorts of things. So they are pertinent to what we're having to do in the real world. So... The short summary is, if you want to be your best person, you should get sleep. 
Absolutely. And most of us know how much sleep we need to be fully functional. I think one of the really important things to remember is that we're all really different from each other. Um, The current scientific recommendations is that the very large majority of us need between about seven to nine hours of sleep per night. There might be a few of us that only need as little as six And there'll also be some of us who need um, up to 10 hours of sleep per night. But outside that range of 6 to 10 is, is not currently recommended. So what's going on during those hours? Well, scientists have divided it up into two main stages of sleep, which are annoyingly named REM and non REM. REM here stands for rapid eye movement, named after, well, the rapid eye movement that scientists observed in people who are fast asleep. Sleep scientists are not particularly creative in their naming of things, so they discovered REM sleep, um, rapid eye movement sleep, and then they discovered that there was another period of time when when our eyes did not seem to be doing this, and so they called it non-rapid eye movement sleep. And so in rapid eye movement or REM sleep, um, our brains are really busy. They look very similar to what they do when they're awake. Um, Your eyes are moving behind your closed eyelids and your skeletal muscles are effectively paralysed. And that is when you are most likely, if I woke you from that stage of sleep, to recall dreams. And so it's one of the really important stages of sleep that we cycle through throughout the night. The other stage, non-REM sleep, can be further divided into falling asleep, light non-REM sleep, and deep non-REM sleep. And this then is the sleep cycle. Throughout the night, we cycle between non-REM, then REM sleep, and back to non-REM. And those cycles are about 90 to 120 minutes long on average. Is REM sleep the goal? Like, do we want to be in that stage where we're dreaming? You know, is it more important than non-REM sleep? The answer is no, they both non-REM and REM sleep are important and it's getting that balance between the two different types of sleep that is important. Being able to cycle through those different stages of sleep is what gives us good quality sleep. This is the goal, what everyone should be high-fiving on. So we talk about good quality sleep being enough sleep. We talk about it being the right structure, being able to cycle through those different stages and without too many awakenings during the night. So we naturally wake during the night, probably once or twice every hour and most of the time you don't remember it. It's also really common to wake up in the night, you know, for a short period of time and and remember it. But we don't want those awakenings to be too frequent because that reduces the quality of the sleep that we can obtain. Falling asleep and waking up are more like processes than an on-off switch, says Lee. But if you're woken out of your sleep cycle at different stages, well, that can have different results. If you're woken out of REM, as Lee says, you might be able to recount your dreams. And for the other stages... Particularly when you're in the lighter stages of sleep, and that's why we call it light non-REM sleep, it's relatively easy to wake you. So at the beginning of the night, if I woke you from light non-REM sleep you'd probably tell me you hadn't been, you didn't think you'd been asleep at all. Um, Whereas if you're in deep non-REM sleep, where your brain activity is quite slow, if I woke you from that stage of sleep, you might feel really 
groggy or disorientated and it takes a little while to wake up and switch back on Um, and we actually call that sleep inertia and it can take sort of 10 or 15 minutes in some instances for that that feeling to subside Um, and that becomes really important when we're talking about sleeping or in, in a workplace setting where you're having a nap and then having to wake up and return to doing a safety critical task understanding those processes and understanding how long your brain needs to just switch back on to full wakefulness is really important. I mean, I was thinking more around household rules, like absolutely no talking to me in the morning until I have coffee. But Lee would focus straight in on the workplace settings because actually applying sleep science to real life situations is her happy place. It's one of the things I most love about what I do is being able to take my knowledge and understanding of sleep science and work with people with practical operational experience and figure out how we make it work in in the real world. Obviously, there are many workplace settings where applied sleep science is needed to reduce risk. But one which Lee has a particular skill set for is the aviation industry. So when I left school, I decided I wanted to learn to fly. And I went off and got my commercial pilot's licence, did some instructing of people who were learning to fly. And then I met the amazing woman who set up the Sleepwake Research Centre here at, um, we're now at Massey University. And she had been overseas working at Harvard and then at NASA doing work in the sleep science space and she came back to New Zealand and I joined her and did my PhD with her and we've worked over the last 20 years in the aviation industry. We've worked with the International Civil Aviation Organisation which is like the UN agency that oversees um, aviation safety globally and um, worked with them designing regulations and guidelines um, that are then offered to countries around the world to use within their regulatory systems Um, and then we've worked with a range of different airlines, I've worked with helicopter companies that are based in Western Australia and more recently I've been working with Air New Zealand as they've been designing and planning going to New York. That first flight to New York took off from Auckland on the 17th of September 2022. Lift off at long last, Air New Zealand has finally opened its long-awaited Auckland to New York route about three years after it was announced. Think about it. You climb onto that long-haul flight. You've got your earplugs, maybe your neck pillow, your blankie and slippers. You scroll through those TV listings. You'll get your little packed dinner with the bread roll, maybe a glass of something, watch a movie and hopefully fall asleep to be wakened at the other end with some brekkie and a coffee. But around you, people are working. So the flight from Auckland up to New York is about 16 hours in in length, Um, and then coming back again because of the different wind conditions, it's about 17 and a half hours. So what we have done is um, worked with Air New Zealand over a long period of time leading up to the start of those flights um, to talk about the considerations and the things we need to think about to make sure that flight and cabin crew remain functional across those long periods of time. In terms of planning these flights, we've worked with airline operational personnel and we've had flight crew representatives and we've had cabin crew representatives and we're all around the table in terms of um, working together to manage 
fatigue on on these these flights. So I bring one little piece of the puzzle to the table in terms of my knowledge and understanding of fatigue science. But they have really critical information about the way these flights need to operate and the demands associated with the workload at particular times. And so we work together um, to figure out what's the best way to manage fatigue across these really long flights. We're thinking about when during those really long periods can we give them opportunities to sleep. We're thinking about what they need to do before they get to work so that they're um, really prepared and then we're thinking about what they should do, for example, when they travel to the US um, and they have their days off. What should we be telling them to do during their layover to recover and then prepare for the, for the flight back again? And then when we get home, what should they be doing once they're back home in, in New Zealand to recover from this out and back duty that they've just done? So Lee will use your knowledge about sleep cycle lengths, the time you need in bed to get good quality sleep and sleep inertia. But something else from basic sleep science that's really important in this applied context is the homeostatic sleep process. It's your brain sending you an important signal that it needs something, either food, in the case of hunger, um, or when you feel sleepy, it's your brain telling you that you need sleep. So if last night you had the perfect amount and quality of sleep, you'd wake up this morning feeling, you know, fully rested and functional. But across the course of the waking day, your brain's need for sleep is going to slowly increase um, and it's going to keep building and building and building the, the longer that you're awake. And then tonight, it's going to help you when you go to bed to fall asleep. It's going to help you begin to sleep. And working alongside that need for sleep is another process, the circadian biological clock. There's a master clock um, located deep within our brain um, in a place we call the suprachiasmatic nuclei. Um, But we also have clocks in almost every cell within our bodies. And they are making sure that our body processes are doing things that we need them to do at the right time of the day. So it means that our digestive system is functioning and ready to receive food during the waking day. And across the course of the the waking day, you probably notice that the clock creates a dip in alertness in the early afternoon when we often feel a little sleepier Mm -hmm. um, and it's when siesta cultures might go off and, and have a nap. But the clock also increases our alertness in a few hours before our normal bedtime. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you've had to get up really early the next morning, perhaps to catch a flight, and you think, right, I'm going to go to bed slightly earlier than I normally would. Um, You go to bed and all you do is lie there staring at the ceiling until your normal bedtime. So that's your clock, um, telling you that it's not quite time to go to sleep. And it counters the effect of that drive for sleep that's built up across the waking day. So we don't fall asleep in our in our dinner in the evening. It keeps us awake throughout the early evening hours. And then around our normal bedtime, our drive for sleep is high and the clock switches from telling us we should be alert and decreases that alerting signal so that we can fall asleep. So we've got the drive for sleep and a clock tuned to daylight. But we're messing with these all the time. 
staying out late to party, looking after a sick kid, getting up early to catch a flight, or working long hours through the night. We live in this 24-7 world where there's this expectation that we can function right across the 24-hour the cycle, and we're just not designed to be like that. One of the important things to remember is that our clock stays in step with the day-night cycle through receiving information from the outside world. And the strongest cue that the clock uses is light. So our daylight that we are exposed to gives the clock important information about the time of day and helps it keep in step with the 24-hour day-night cycle. And I presume this clock didn't evolve to fly across time zones into, you know, darkness when it should be daylight. No, I mean, it it has evolved to um, keep us in step with the the normal day-night cycle. Fortunately, though, when we do fly across time zones and when we end up in on the other side of the planet the clock can use the light information from that new time zone to help shift the timing of when things are happening to be in step with the new um, time zone but it doesn't happen instantaneously and the further you travel the longer you need to become adjusted to that new time zone and we know that the clock finds it easier to travel west than it does to travel east because of the direction of the adaptation that is required. So when we go west, we have to extend our day slightly. We stay up slightly later, and the clock seems to find that easier to do. When we travel east, we tend to have to shift things earlier in the day, um, and the clock finds that slightly more difficult to do. So when you were working with Air New Zealand on you know, looking at what they can do for their staff with this new Auckland to New York flight. Are you mapping out all of these different things? Like this is a 16-hour flight and it's going to go from this time zone to this time zone and so you're going to change from darkness to light. Are you looking across all of those things? Absolutely. So we're thinking about how long people need to be awake for. We're thinking about where um, their biological clock is telling them that their night is going to be. And so, for example, we're using that information to plan when the best sleep opportunities might be, for example, when they're flying from Auckland to New York, and then again when they're travelling back again from New York back, back to Auckland. Yep, actually sleeping on the flight. On these large aeroplanes, there are cabin areas for the crew to climb into small bunks to get some rest when it's their turn. And Lee says, on these very long flights, there will be four pilots, two pairs. So at any time, two of the pilots are flying and two are resting. Sleeping on the job is maybe something companies in general might not be stoked about. But for some roles, it makes so much sense. The effects of losing sleep are all unhelpful for workplace environments. Becoming more irritable, responding more slowly, having difficulties paying attention, being less situationally aware, poor at problem solving and making decisions, and more likely to take risks. And at the end of the scale of problems with fatigue is the scariest scenario, microsleeps on the job. When sleepiness becomes extreme, then our brains go off and get sleep, no matter where we are or what we're doing. So 
frighteningly, many of us have had the experience of perhaps driving a car when we've not had enough sleep and then you suddenly get to a location and you can't quite remember the last little while um, and we hear reports unfortunately perhaps of people driving off the road um, having had a what we call a micro sleep our brain's need for sleep has got so great that it's gone off and got a little moment of sleep and at that extreme end of the continuum it doesn't matter what you're doing or where you are your brain's desire for sleep is so great that it has a short period of sleep and that can result in a, in a safety-critical event. To avoid this then, what lessons from her work does Lee take home to put into practice? One of the things that I do take home is realising that sleep is really valuable. I am not perfect about sleeping, and I think that's one thing that we've got to remember. The sleep doesn't have to be perfect every single night, but like the same as you know, diet and exercise. If we're trying to eat reasonably well and we're trying to get some activity every day, we're doing pretty okay. And if we're trying to value and prioritise sleep and we're trying to go to bed about the same time each night, get up about the same time each day, if we're doing those things, then we're doing pretty well in terms of getting sleep that'll help us stay healthy and well. And if for some reason you can't do this, well then remember that napping is your friend. What we say is that some sleep is always better than none. And even quite short amounts of sleep can be beneficial. So we know that sleep as short as you know, 10 to 20 minutes helps us feel better and function better. The more sleep we can get, the longer those effects last for. I mean, you might not immediately feel great after you've had a nap, but you are certainly going to be more functional than if you haven't had any sleep at all. Thanks to Professor Lee Signal, Professor of Fatigue Management and Sleep Health at the Sleepwake Research Centre at Massey University, Wellington. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with help from Liz Garten and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by William Saunders, and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. I recommend that you find and follow the Our Changing World podcast. Search for it now on your favourite podcast app and click on the follow button so that new episodes download weekly and you never miss a single one. Also, if you want to read more about this topic, visit our website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, where I'll link a few resources related to this story, as well as past episodes related to sleep. If you're on social media, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Have a great week. Kia pai to wiki. All right, so from now on, champing, champing, I can't speak. I'm, I'm too tired for this. <laughs> you need to go and have a nap. <laughs> so from now on, championing, champ, I can't say that word. <laughs> yeah, putting sleep right up there, as important as the other things. The end. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.